Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at our supporting sponsor, UTSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. It is a beautiful October fall day here in East Tennessee. Got a new drug to talk about. Got uh, interesting uh, biomarkers to talk about and uh, a CAR-T product to talk about today. So first, let's talk about <clears throat> uh, last week's approval by the FDA of Futibatinib or maybe Futibatinib. Uh, not sure how this will be pronounced. Uh, uh, Futibatinib sounds the best to me. Uh, brand name looks to be Light Gobi, L-Y-T-G-O-B-I, Light, Lit, Lit Gobi, Lit Gobi, Lit Gobi. Who knows? Uh, but anyway, Futibatinib is an FGFR 1, 2, 3, and 4 kinase inhibitor. Uh, it was granted accelerated approval for previously treated unresectable or metastatic, uh, previously treated locally advanced, uh, unresectable, or metastatic intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. I want to highlight the intrahepatic. We have um, three other FGFR inhibitors approved, which means we now have the same number of FGFR kinase inhibitors as we have SGLT2 inhibitors uh, on the market. Um, so we have Futibatinib, uh, and then pimigatinib and infagretinib, both which have a very similar approval, except it's just cholangiocarcinoma. Uh, same thing, locally advanced, unresectable, or metastatic, but foodibatinib's approval is specific to intrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma. Why that is, I'm not actually sure. And then there's urtafitinib, uh, FGFR inhibitor approved for bladder cancer. Uh, and these are uh, intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas that have FGFR2 fusion or rearrangements. Uh, as you would have guessed, as you know by now, it's accelerated approval, response rate, uh, 42%, all partial responses, 103 patients here. It's You could have predicted this. Um, I will say that this overall response, or objective response rate of 42%, the 95% uh, confidence rate is 32 to 55%, relatively narrow, median duration of response, 9.7 months. Nothing necessarily new or noteworthy about that. Uh, as with many newly approved oral agents. Uh, there's a there's a decent pill burden here. So the dose is 20 milligrams orally uh, daily. Uh, that comes as five, four milligram tablets is the dose. Uh, <clears throat> this happens a lot, right? A new drug is approved and we have all these, this cocktail, not cocktail, because they're, they're the same thing, but uh, these multiplicative doses that are required, multiplicative uh, tablets or capsules that are required to get the full dose. A couple of reasons for this. Uh, the generous take is this allows for dose reduction very easily. Instead of taking five tablets with toxicity, you can take four without needing a new prescription or new copay. That is helpful as we learn the toxicity profile of agents and who's going to tolerate what, for example. <clears throat> but I think a lot of this has to do with just uh, it's easier to make a four milligram tablet or capsule than it is to make a 20 milligram tablet. Um, and uh, at least in the phase one study, uh, when you're trying to find the dose, my guess is uh, you don't know what the dose will be. So why make a 20 milligram dosage form uh, and spend time as a company doing that if four milligrams is going to end up being the, the recommended phase two dose going forward? Uh, we have seen with other drugs like Ibrutinib is a good example where we had the 140 milligram dosage form. And then later, saw so this with a laparib too, then later we get kind of the dosage form for life, the everyday or the, um, the permanent dosage form comes out later. Yeah, I think drug companies spend their money on getting the drug approved <clears throat> and then reinvest some money into the pharmaceutics to get uh, the, the, the ideal dosage form afterwards. Anyway, initially this drug is going to have a pretty high pill burden, although it can be taken without regard for meals. As with other FGFR inhibitors, the key 
thing to know, if you only know one thing about FGFR inhibitors is IFOS, so ocular toxicity and hyperphosphatemia, uh, which are on-target toxicities, at least the hyperphosphatemia. So we do, uh, we can see retinal pigment epithelial detachment occurred in 9% of people uh, across uh, 300 plus patients in all clinical trials, not just in cholangio. And that occurred in 9% of patients um, where uh, optical coherence tomography, or OCT, uh, was not mandated, but may have occurred. I don't remember this optical coherence tomography originally being in the labels uh, for uh, pimigatinib and infragratinib, but it is uh, now. Uh, in the case of pimigatinib, you need this ophthal ophthalmologic eye, fancy eye exam uh, with optic coherence tomography at baseline, and then every two months for six months, and then every three months thereafter. I think for pimigatinib, it's just every three months uh, but that, that is now in the label. Of course, they need to go see their ophthalmologist. Um, also, hyperphosphatemia. It's an on-target toxicity of fibroblast growth factor receptors. 88%, let's just round up to 100%. 77% uh, required a phosphate binder. You can also see soft tissue mineralization, so a little, little baby bone formation in the soft tissue. And then embryofetal toxicity, there's a warning for that as well. Other notable toxicities of this agent included nail toxicity, 47%, alopecia, 34%, uh, musculoskeletal pain in 43%, arthralgias in 25%, and UTIs in 23%, a little surprising, saw higher incidence in other FGFR inhibitors. Perhaps that's just the, disease, the, uh, the, um, the underlying disease state uh, versus the drug. Uh, hard to say without a placebo uh, comparison. You know, again, it's the fourth FGFR inhibitor that we have, the third in cholangio. Again, the key thing here, what's unique about this, appears to be this uh, approval for intrahepatic uh, cholangiocarcinoma. Um, one of the interesting things from uh, administration, distribution, metabolism, and elimination standpoint is this drug is uh, insoluble at a pH of 3 or higher, and yet there's no uh, apparent decrease in bioavailability with PPIs. Uh, in this study. Uh, infragratinib does have a drug interaction with PPI, so that could be a determining factor in which of these three FGFRs you would use for an intrahepatic uh, lesion. Now, if you have an intrahepatic cholangio, should you use fudibatinib compared to pimigatinib or infragratinib? Can't tell right now. Um, I would say go with maybe what you're familiar with if you've used these drugs before. Similarly, it is a 3-4 substrate, uh, also uh, to a lesser extent metabolized by CYP2C9 and 2D6. Um, the label says to avoid co-administration with dual 3A4 and P-glycoprotein inhibitors or inducers. Um, relatively modest drug interactions, it looks like. Itraconazole, for example, increases AUC or total drug exposure 41%, a moderate. Uh, you know, it's not like a 500-fold, you know, 500% or 5-fold increase in bioavailability. Um, uh, Fudibatinib is a P-glycoprotein inhibitor and a breast cancer resistance protein inhibitor. Uh, as pharmacists, I think we're fairly comfortable evaluating uh, sets of drugs uh, with some time looking for peak like a protein uh, uh, mediated drug interactions. But these these transport proteins, whether it's peak like a protein, breast cancer resistant protein, uh, OAT1B1, all these other transporters in the intestinal uh, uh, lumen, in the kidney and the liver, this is the next frontier of drug drug interactions. That's why I mentioned these uh, as we go through these new drug approvals. Okay, so that's fudibatinib. Fun, fun drug to say. You can use three emojis, fudibatinib, uh, and add the nib at the end. Uh, maybe you could do a nib. You could do like the, the point of a pen or pencil. 
And you do all emojis, which would help for patient counseling, obviously. All right, the next study I'm going to talk about is the PADA-1 trial, which was published in Lancet Oncology um, on the 29th of September. This is switch to fulvestra and palbociclib versus no switch in advanced breast cancer using ESR1 mutation during aromatase inhibitor and palbociclib a randomized open-label multicenter phase three trial. All right, really interesting study here. So these are patients with, um, with metastatic hormone-positive breast cancer, and they're on standard aromatase inhibitor and palocyclin, okay? That's what they're on. They're going through that. If they're premenopausal, they're on an LHRH agonist as well for ovarian suppression. And so what has been seen in retrospective studies is ESR, which is a gene that encodes for the estrogen receptor alpha, which is the main... Uh, isoform for the estrogen receptor, that there can be mutations in this that lead to constitutive activation of the estrogen receptor. Not surprisingly, you see the same thing with androgen receptors in, in prostate cancer. It's the AR7 variant, I believe. Uh, here it's ESR1. And so what this trial is looking, and so if you have um, ESR1 mutations, uh, it doesn't matter if you are in an andro or if you're in an estrogen poor environment from the aromatase inhibitor, uh, even if there's no estradiol, the estrogen receptor is still going to cause activation and, and growth and progression of the breast cancer cells. Uh, however, they still can respond to fulvestrin, which is an estrogen receptor down regulator. So mechanistically, this makes sense. So this is a really interesting trial um, where they are looking at folks and they're monitoring the, these ESR1 levels. And if the levels increase, first, they scan them to make sure there's not disease progression. Uh, because if there's disease progression, you go into second-line therapy. But if you have a rising biomarker that suggests resistance, but there's no progression, what do you do? Well, you know, we don't have uh, any study to say that you change at this point. And this reminds me of uh, a physician I used to work with who, who had an interest uh, in a specialty in ovarian cancer. So a lot of ovarian cancer patients. And so... You'd see these folks with metastatic ovarian cancer who are on, you know, their 12th cycle of carboplatin and paclitaxel or bevacizumab or whatever agent it is, and their CA125, common tumor marker used to monitor ovarian cancer, is starting to trend up. They're trending up. Patient feels fine. No clinical signs of progression. Uh, no radiographic signs of progression. Well, do you change it? Well, if the patient feels good, probably not. Uh, and, and oftentimes you look at the rate of rise. So there's some art to this. So anyway, what they're doing in this trial is they're looking for these patients. They had about 10,000 screened. Sorry, that's too many. 1,000 screened. Um, and of those 1,000, there was a rising ESR at about 25%. Um, and then of that uh, 280, then 172 were randomized to the next step. So you have like 80 or 90 patients who upon rising ESR and no evidence of progression were randomized just to continue AI and palbocyclib kind of standard of care or a switch to fulvestra and palbocyclib. And what they're measuring here is progression-free survival. And you see some, a pretty impressive Kaplan-Meier curve where you know the median progression-free survival, if you stay on the AI and palbocyclib, is about six months. It's about 12 months with the early switch to fulvestra and palbocyclib. Stratified hazard ratio of 0.61. Um, 95% comfortable, 0.43 to 0.86, relatively wide. Katmire curves do separate quite a bit. Very interesting, certainly hypothesis generating. And I think that, um, you know, it's fewer than 200 patients. So can't take a whole lot to the bank based on this, but certainly I think sets the stage for further research in this. Uh, and, uh, you know, is it worth the cost to do an ESR1? Don't know. 
Um, you know, the big theory here is not so much that you're getting some progression-free survival benefit, but the longer you allow a resistant clone to grow, the, the greater risk you have of more resistant subclones and a harder to treat, a more complex genetically uh, breast cancer that then maybe won't respond to other tissues, not tissues, drugs. All right, the last one to talk about is a new CAR-T article in the New England Journal of Medicine. GPRC5D, sounds like something from Star Wars. Uh, so GPRC5D targeted CAR-T cells for myeloma. So this is G-protein-coupled receptor, class C, group 5, member D. It's a G-coupled protein receptor. It's an orphan G-coupled protein receptor, which apparently means that we don't know what it does. But we know that it's found in uh, plasma cells in the bone marrow and myeloma, patients who have myeloma. It's also expressed in low levels in hair follicles of the skin and hard keratinizing tissue. I'm reading from the PI. So this is a phase one study. Uh, they, they got 19 patients with uh, relapsed refractory myeloma, 17 of which actually got the drug, uh, the CAR-T product, and can be evaluated. Um, it, it's a phase one study, so it's a dose-finding study, and they're looking at doses of uh, 25 million all the way up to 450 million CAR T cells. So instead of saying 25 times 10 to the 6, I'll just say 25, 50, 150, 450. Those were kind of the ranges here. 450 was found to be too toxic. Um, and, and so 150 was kind of the, the, the maximum tolerated dose. Um, and of course, we saw a lot of cytokine release syndrome, 88% across all dose levels. Uh, ICANN's immunofactor cell associate neurologic syndrome was seen in 6%. There was also a, 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 an odd cerebellar disorder seen in two patients or 12%, and that was at the higher dose uh, of this. Uh, also, nail changes in 65%. Again, hard keratinizing tissue is where this G-coupled protein receptor is. Must have some role there. Uh, from a response standpoint, um, you know, the, the total response rate here was 71%. That includes, though, the dose that was too toxic. If you just look at the doses people could tolerate, it was 58%. So there, uh, if you could tolerate the drug better, maybe it'd be a little bit more efficacious at higher doses. Story of oncology, I know. Um, so, you know, uh, this uh, drug did have activity in people who had received prior BCMA targeted therapies. Could have been CAR-T potentially. Um, but the response rates were appeared to be better. Again, you only have 17 patients here, so it's hard to split these hairs when there are so few hairs to split. But it sure looked like patients did better and had higher response rates if they had if they were had not received prior BCMA therapy. Uh, you know, total response was 67% uh, in the uh, the tolerated doses if they had no previous BCMA therapy and 50% with prior BCMA therapy. But you're talking n of six in both scenarios, so hard to say, but worth passing along that we might have a new drug target, uh, G-coupled protein receptor group 5, member D, um, which, let's be honest, we need a new name for it. We should call it the myeloma G-coupled protein receptor. That's what I'm going to call it, or what we should call it. Let's name these things better, folks. All right, that's what I have for today. Thank you all for, uh, for listening. Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at FarmDeaconib, and you can follow both the podcast uh, on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.
Thank you.